What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Mikey Taylor is a former professional skateboarder who now spends his time investing in real estate across the United States at Commune Capital. He previously was also the co-founder of St. Archer Brewery before they were acquired by Miller Coors. In this conversation, we discuss Mikey's epic run as a pro skateboarder, learning to be an entrepreneur, how he used self-evaluation to pursue self-improvement, how the St. Archer acquisition happened, what he is seeing happen in the real estate market, and why market cycles are essential to understand. I really enjoyed this conversation with Mikey, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly tell you about our sponsors. The first is Bitsy. The Bitsy Exchange allows you to trade confidently. They are the leader in futures, which means they are pioneering futures 2.0. With Bitsy, you can trade next level futures, freely choose and combine your margin and settlement assets and trade with up to 100x leverage. You can also sign up for a Bitsy Elite membership that gives you unbeatable discounts and bonuses across the Bitsy Exchange, OTC platform, and more. Go to bitsy.com slash pomp to get a 10% discount on your Bitsy Elite membership. That's right. You can get 10% off if you go to bitsy, B-T-S-E, spelled B-T-S-E dot com slash pomp. It's pronounced bitsy, but it's spelled B-T-S-E dot com slash pomp. Go check out the leader in crypto futures. The second sponsor is Helium. The Helium Hotspot is a new product that enables the people not the telcos, to own and operate a wireless network in the city for Internet of Things devices. Historically, the telcos have had a monopoly on owning wireless networks. Helium's changing that. They are breaking it up and democratizing ownership and access. You can earn crypto for helping to build the network and providing connectivity to Internet of Things devices by sending small bits of data. Join the movement today and get your Helium hotspot with $50 off using the code POMP at helium.com. I've got one set up and it's cranking away. I'm doing my part. So join us, helium.com, and use the code POMP for 50 bucks off a Helium hotspot and let's take the power back from the telcos. Lastly, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy to understand language while sharing my opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Mikey. I hope you guys enjoy it. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. Super excited to have Mike on today. Uh, a little bit different in that I have no clue if he knows anything about crypto, but he's had a fascinating life and a, uh, a mutual fr- friend, Grant. Grant now is two for two with me. One, he convinced me to switch to Zoom. So we are now using Zoom and can hear each other and see each other. And you guys can listen to us. And also uh, he connected with Mike. So uh, thanks for doing this, man. Epic. I'm stoked to be here. Awesome. Um, All right, let's just go through your background, kind of what you did and how the hell do you become uh, a prolific skater? So, yeah, it was, you know, it felt a little random because my 
intentions as a kid was never to become a pro skateboarder. Uh, I just started skateboarding and fell in love with it. And it quickly became uh, an obsession of mine. And I just didn't want to stop. It was like that simple. I just didn't want to let it go. And when I, you know, right around 16, my parents really started pushing me to get a job. And I took that as taking away from time that I wanted to skate. So I had to figure out a hack around it, which ended up being, you know, convinced companies to give me free product. And then I don't need money because I get it all for free. And, and then that prolonged or, or gave me an extra two years until I was going to graduate high school. And then, you know, my parents hit me with, where are you going to college? And, you know, I, I wasn't quite ready yet to give up skating. So I had to figure out a new plan, figure out how to get these companies to pay me. And then that ended up turning into a career. It was all out of, you know, desperation of not wanting to stop doing what I love doing. So one of the things I always think is fascinating, uh, especially in sports like skateboarding, how much of it is you were good and then you found sponsors versus you were able to find sponsors who gave you gear, which gave you the opportunity to practice more. And like that led to you being good, right? Like, how do you think about that kind of balance? Oh man, I, you know what? I think I've seen it all at this point, truthfully. There's definitely like people who are just God-given, just spewing talent, and they are just naturally good. You, you have those people, right? I was not one of them. I, I was the person who became so obsessed that I wasn't willing to not be good, and I wasn't willing to hear no. I was more like the workhorse guy. Uh, and, and that's just what I had to do to create success, because for me, it was a little harder. Like, I was... I was the kid in my crew that took the longest to do tricks. I was the one that everyone was waiting for. I just wasn't willing to give up. And, you know, I had other friends who it was just, it was as natural as walking. It was just, it, it was like art watching them do it. And so I think it depends. You, you usually land, you know, if not on opposite ends, somewhere in the middle. And I just ended up leaning towards, I've got to work harder than the people around me. Yeah, I love that. And then what did you do in terms of you're a 16-year-old kid and you say, hey, I got to go convince these brands to like give me gear. What was that process like? Did you just start cold calling people or what do you do? Yeah, it was a little harder back then than it is now. Uh, There's no social media. So basically I convinced uh, that we had a filmer, like a neighborhood filmer, the guy who just like filmed all of us. And I convinced him to help me make a video, kind of like a sponsor me tape. And it took about, I don't know, four or five months to make it. It was about three minutes long. It was VHS style. And I just went through the magazines. And, and every once in a while, when a company ran an ad, they would leave their address. And so I didn't care the company. I would just, I was, I took the address on any company that left it and then packaged my VHS tape up, wrote attention team manager, because I didn't even know people in the industry. And I sent like 40 of these things out just <laughs> at will. Uh, and no one called me back. It was just completely dry. And so I convinced the, the guy who filmed, uh, Steve Ireland, to make me another tape. It took another four or five months. I sent another 40 out. And on the second batch, I got two companies to call me. Okay. And when you're sending these out, is there like a letter in there that's basically like, sponsor me? Or like, like what goes with the tape? There should have been. <laughs> there definitely should have been. But my limited experience... Uh, no, man, it was a tape. On the tape, I put a sticker that said Mikey Taylor with my phone number under it. And then, you know, a package that said attention team manager. That was it. It worked. That was all I had. It, it worked. It, it worked. It worked. It was like, the, you know, the grace of God, like guys snuck in there somehow. 
I love it. I love it. And so I'm assuming that at some point, like once you uh, get sponsors, does it kind of compound and now, oh, you've got that sponsor. So somebody else wants to sponsor you or do you still kind of have to hustle for uh, more sponsors after those first two? You know what? There's okay. So in skateboarding, there's a thing called flow, which means companies just give you free product, but they're not advertising you. And then from the point of them advertising you is when you become amateur and then pro is beyond that. So think of it as like three ranks, right? The flow uh, scenario is awesome because you're getting free product, but no other company knows who you are. You, you haven't made a splash yet. So I didn't have a lot of companies calling me at that point. It wasn't until I started getting in magazines and videos where then people started paying attention to me and then other companies started reaching out. But from the point of me getting my first sponsor, man, it was probably three years uh, from that point. All right. So every skateboarder I know has incredibly crazy stories of things that they tried to do. What's the craziest thing you can tell us that you're comfortable being on the internet that you and your friends try to do uh, skating? Uh, like reckless stuff, like places that we tried to skate that we weren't allowed to. Sure. That, that's a, that even sounds better. <laughs> oh man. Oh. Um, you know, what's funny, man, when we were kids, like, you know, like being where we weren't supposed to be was such a regular everyday occurrence and like running from the cops was like so normal for us. I'm trying to think of like a, a point where it all went wrong. Uh, you're, like, you're basically saying that everywhere you went, you weren't supposed to be. My truthfully, my job was an illegal job. I was never supposed to be doing what I was supposed to do. I mean, think about it, man. Schools, you're not allowed to skate at schools. You're not allowed to skate at business. Like, the amount of FI cards that have been written on me are, I mean, dude, it's books by now. You know, it was just like a normal thing. Like the cops in our area knew us uh, by name. It was just part of the gig. I, you know, I, I'm trying, I mean, there were times where, you know, we got tickets. There was times, gosh, there was one time and it wasn't even us trying to like do anything out of the ordinary, but we were skating in San Bernardino. Uh, we were skating at the school and it was probably maybe 11 at night. We used to go at schools at, at night and light stuff up because no one was around. And the cops came, right? Which is like totally normal for us. But like where we were was a little bit hood. And so the cops come in like guns blazing, right? Where there's like 10 of us, we're on the ground. And we're from like Thousand Oaks. So we're like suburb kids. We're on the ground, hands might, right? And as they're running our info, uh, they take me aside. And they go, do you have something to tell us? And I was like, no. And they're like, are you sure? Because we just ran your name. And I was like, no. And he goes, well, put, you know, put, he handcuffed me. And he's like, we're, we're going to arrest you. And I was like, for what? And I guess some guy out there just got popped for armed robbery, had my same name, same age, like freakishly aligned, right? And so they thought I was a fugitive on the run. And like, I'm sitting here, I'm 18 years old. I'm basically in tears, right? I'm like, you guys don't understand. I'm from the suburbs. Like I live in this neighborhood. It's like the movies, like, you know, just totally green. And, and they're looking at me like something doesn't add up. And I'm just like, oh my God, and my brothers, I'm like, Matt, call mom and dad. Like they got to get me out of here. I've never been arrested at that point. So, uh, so basically as they're getting ready to walk me out, I was like, you know, begging him, please, can you please just run my name one more time? This is not me. And he runs it one more time. And for some reason, the, uh, the person on the, the, the operator or whatever was like, 
said something like, how tall is he? And they were like, oh, he's like 6'2". And I guess the guy happened to be like small. He was like 5'7". Like, uh, we have, a, I don't know if this is him. And then they ended up, you know, figuring out it wasn't me. And then they let me go. But even when they let me go, they didn't even give me a sorry. They were like, you guys should have not known better. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I was going to ask, like, as you're leaving, are you cordial with them? Or is this like, I told you, you know, you, you had the wrong uh, guy the whole time. I was silent and just thankful to get me the hell out of here. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. Um, all right. And so as you guys are kind of growing up, like my understanding is uh, as you're talking about those tiers, right? Kind of the flow and then even into the amateurs, like a lot of this is just, you're doing it because you love doing it. At what point does it become kind of a job, right? Not in the, the negative sense of a job, but just like you start realizing like, Oh wait, I can like make a living doing this. And it's not just to get free gear, but like they're going to pay me money. So two point, two parts to it. Uh, one, you, you start making some money when you turn amateur, it's not a ton, but it's a little bit. Then you turn pro and you make a little bit more, and the challenge is like, you love doing it. So like any type of money is like, oh my gosh, I'm getting paid for my craft. You're not making that much at that point. Uh, there, there was a time in which I got a, my own signature shoe. And that's where like kind of more significant money came in. And so from a monetary standpoint, it was right around, oh gosh, I was probably 23, 22, 23. I was like, okay, here we go. Uh, on the other end though, you know, when you have a passion, you just do it at, at, because you love doing it, right? There's no one telling you how to do it, when to do it, why to do it. When you get sponsored, you all of a sudden have to show up to demos, contests, you have magazines, et cetera. And it changes. It definitely does. There's an adjustment. You almost have to like, like reinvent your passion for it, if that makes sense. And then you have expectations because now you have people watching you and criticizing you. So it, it, it kind of, for me, all aligned at one time where when I started making okay money and started feeling the pressure was right around that 23, 22, 23 uh, time. And then I was like, okay, this is a job and this isn't as fun anymore. You know, it, I had to like find a new, a new love. It, it almost feels like to some degree, they're like, oh, hey, by the way, we're giving you money because you have to do things for us. Right. That's, like, right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That was a very valuable learning experience is, uh, they're not just giving me money because I love skateboarding. Yeah. They're giving me money because they see some type of value in which I can then make them money. And so it, it, you know, I had to learn that. And then, and then through that, I had to learn a new way to like it. You know, it's like, that was just what was, what we were up against. So that was like, I don't know, three years in about. Okay. And, and, and in terms of like the competitions versus just skating more for fun, like obviously you're kind of always, especially in a sport like skateboarding, it seems like always kind of competing with yourself. Hey, can I do this trick? Can we do this? Whatever. But then you go into an environment where there is the cameras, there is fans, like all of that. Like how did that change in terms of uh, not the, the money side of it, but actually like what you're actually doing on a day-to-day -day basis? So so for me, I didn't skate contests until I was older. I was pro for probably 10 years before I skated a contest. And that's because of what you just touched on. I, I, it's, I was drawn to skating because it was me against me. I wasn't looking at the other person trying to be better than them. It was like, how can I improve? It was such a, I mean, it was selfish, but it was incredible how it was just about me. And so with skating, even when I became pro, and other people were pro. It was all about how I could shoot the best photo in this magazine for myself. 
once contests came into the picture, and this was, gosh, I was probably 27 at this point, which is super late for a pro skate contest. That was the first time where I actually had to like train and like practice and like get my mind in the, in the game in a sense. And there's parts I liked about it. There's parts I didn't like one, I'm naturally a competitive person. So there was an element that I liked that side of it. The other challenge I had was I didn't pick skateboarding because I wanted to compete with the person next to me. So it, it was a, there was a balance behind it, I guess, pros and cons to both. Um, but when I skated contests, like truthfully, I would try to do the best I could do. And if that meant sixth place and it was the best I skated, I was stoked. If I skated like crap and got third, wasn't that happy. Got it. And so after your skate career, you obviously went on to do other things, but while you were skating, were you doing other things kind of on the side or were you just hundred percent all of your time and effort and, and mental energy focused on skating? So there was two parts of it. The first half of my career was 100% focused on skateboarding, but I was, I was, I was investing a lot when I was young. So I had somebody come into my life that started teaching me about money but I wasn't managing anything other than my focus on skateboarding. But then he kind of taught me how to be disciplined with how I spent. And then he kind of educated me on where I could put money. And that was ultimately my backup plan. Like I'm going to focus on skateboarding. I'm going to make as much as I can here. And I'm going to put as much of that to work so that when my career ends, that'll be my exit. It wasn't until, gosh, how old was I? 28. So this is a little past halfway through. I started wanting to, to, start my own companies and this kind of entrepreneurial spirit came in and that's when uh i kind of started this hybrid approach where i was still a pro skateboarder but i was trying to start companies while i was still pro and relevant and influential and then i did that for oh gosh maybe six years and then at six year point is when i stepped away completely from skateboarding and then went 100 percent into business and what were some of the early business, either ideas or actual things that you started in terms of while you were skating, you were trying to start these businesses and work on them? Okay, so I had this like original idea that like anything that I was going to market, I could own. That was like my first, first idea. And so, you know, it started with like a backpack company, a skateboard brand, a clothing brand. Uh, we started a craft brewery, which uh, ended up being a huge blessing because I didn't have a drink sponsor. So it was like, okay, cool. Like I don't have a drink sponsor. Like that'll be a good, like whatever accessory brand almost. And then, uh, gosh, also we did, we did a design company. We did a, I tried to do a, a, a platform one time, like an artistic platform. <laughs> a lot of those didn't work. Um, and then what I do now. Okay. And, and so when you go to start, like, it makes sense, right? A lot of, uh, not necessarily professional athletes, but a lot of like content creators and stuff now are realizing, wait a second, if the advertising is valuable to the advertiser, like it's probably valuable to me too, right? Like I should That's probably right. go build this stuff. Um, how are you going about, you know, this is a couple of years ago, so it's not like, you know, the internet and kind of all the tools we have today, but when you go to start that backpack company or that skateboard company or whatever, like, are you, literally doing it by yourself? Are you building teams? Are you trying to use other tools? Like, let's just walk through kind of like operationally how you were trying to do it. Such a good, good question. So I, I learned through experience the importance of building a team. And that was because I was still skateboarding, right? Like, like I said, I had a point where I was still skateboarding. I was trying to start businesses and each one demands so much time. 
So the only way you're able to do two things at once is if you have people come together and help you achieve both together. And so the first company I started, and it's not even the first, the first few, I had to find people to help me uh, operate them from a day-to-day standpoint because I wasn't able to dedicate that much time. So how I would do it in the beginning was I would spend a lot of time uh, creating the company, helping create the team and launching it. And then once the point of launching it, then I was able to uh, free up some time to then put towards skateboarding and then participate heavily on the marketing side. And then any of like the uh, bigger picture uh, decisions and conversation. Uh, And then that led to, which is awesome. When I started my next company, when it was a hundred percent business and no longer skateboarding, I was already trained that I need people to help me create this vision. I am, it's not possible for me to do it alone. And so that was a huge learning lesson that I was fortunate to learn through this hybrid model of me still skating. And, and did you, were you one of the first skaters to kind of say, Hey, wait a second, rather than advertise somebody else's stuff, I'll just create my own. Or did you learn that from somebody? Learned it. Uh, so there was a skateboarder called Jamie Thomas and he was, he was so influential to me because one, I saw him in a video one time, like he was filming one of the skaters and he was like one of the gnarliest, best pro skateboarders of all time. And I saw him in a video filming another skater. I was like, whoa, this guy films also. And then I found out that he owned the company he rode for, which was Zero. And then he ended up starting a shoe company called Fallen. And he was the first example where I went, oh my gosh, skaters can be more than skaters. They could own the things they're doing. And so he was, I think, the first example that I saw. Uh, And then there were a handful of others, but truthfully, not that many. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. And and then in terms of uh, walking away from skating, you pretty much had spent, sounds like, almost 20 years of your life doing this, uh, maybe even more. Why why stop? Like, what what was kind of the impetus for saying, all right, maybe uh, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore? So, uh, okay, remember I told you when skateboarding became a job for me? I had to find a new love in it. So, so there was a point where like, whatever, I, I love skateboarding. And then all of a sudden, you know, the pressure and the requirements, there was a, a time where I didn't like it anymore. And I ended up falling in love with the business side of my skate career. And that happened a, a, around the same time of me getting a shoe. And I started experiencing, you know, everything that goes into selling products, sales, marketing, you know, it, it design, it was, I, I was fascinated by it. And once I got a first shoe, then I started looking at, okay, I can do tricks, but how can I reach more people? What platforms can I get on to grow my audience? And and how can I connect with them that is then in turn going to help me sell more products? And I started loving that process. And then even when I started my first company, it just started reinforcing this new passion that I enjoy building something. And so with, with my skateboarding and why it ended up ending, uh, I had my sponsors, I had two sponsors that were my main income, ended up letting me go. And it was at a point where uh, I had just had surgery. And so I was laying on the couch, got a call, all of my income went away. And I was probably, I don't know, 12 months, maybe 11 months away from being 100%, uh, being recovered 100%. And so I kind of had to make a decision. It was like, okay, I'm 34 years old. I have passion for, for the business side. 
I can't skateboard for another year. I have no income coming in. What are my options? And I looked at it as my options were I can heal, try to get more sponsors, and maybe I'm two years out possibly from making money again as a pro skateboarder, or I use this time as, as the time to truly step away. And I looked at it as there was, even if I tried to get sponsored again, I was only trying to delay the inevitable because there's only a, so there's only long, I only have so much time for sponsors to pay me. And so I ended up stepping away and uh, it was brutal. <laughs> it wasn't easy. It was, it was, it was such a hard decision because I expected my career to end a certain way and it ended such a different way. And I think all of us naturally want to, we want things to happen on our terms and it didn't. And there was a point where I had to wrestle with that and then ultimately accept it. Uh, but that's ultimately why, because it no longer became a career. And then I lost the new purpose I had in skateboarding because now the business element wasn't there either. Yeah. And, and uh, before we get into what you did after your skate career, uh, do you still skate and how often? Uh, I still skate, not like I used, I mean, I, when I say I was obsessed, even as a pro, I would skate five hours a day every single day for probably 20 something years, like thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. Now, uh, I don't know, once a week, maybe once every two weeks. That's still, that's still a lot. I mean, for the average person, that's definitely a lot, right? For the average, I, I would say for the average 36-year-old uh, who has three kids and uh, a business that he's doing full-time, that's a pretty good amount. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And uh, you mentioned the uh, the craft brewery. So uh, I have on good order uh, from Grant that uh, you are gluten uh, intolerant, yet you started a craft brewery. So we're going to have to unpack this a little bit. What was going on there? So when we started it, I didn't know I was gluten intolerant. And, you know, me and my two partners, when we started it, we were like, you know, there was an element, we're like, dude, we're going to have free beer forever. Like our, you know, our fridge is going to be stocked. And three months before we opened doors, I found out I was gluten intolerant. And it was like, the lights went dark. I'm like, are you kidding me? What, this whole thing? And, you know, so basically for three years, we owned it for a little over three years. Uh, you know, when we would do like, we would do events at the brewery and we would pour beer. I'd have to like take a St. Archer beer, empty it and fill it with something else. It was like, it sucked. That part sucked. And then we, end up, we ended up selling it. And then uh, about a year and a half, two years later, they, they did a gluten-free beer. I was like, we really should have been on that trend when we had it, you know? I, I love just the idea of, uh, you know, you hear all these people like, oh, follow your passion. And I've literally heard people say, if you tell that to too many young guys, they'll literally go create beer companies and like all this stuff, right? Like, oh, I like to drink. I'll just create a beer company. But uh, totally, you got to be careful with passions. But it worked, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, it did. So, it worked out. So there's tons of people who've created breweries, especially in the last couple of years. Why do you guys end up being successful? And you ultimately sold it to uh, Miller Coors, I, I believe, right? It's so like, mm -hmm. how yeah. do you end up building a successful brewery where many are just not as successful or, or end up not making it work? Okay, I'll tell you why I think it was successful. <laughs> when, when we uh, started doing our, let's call it due diligence of trying to figure out how to take this idea and create it into a reality, uh, it was two things were happening. One, craft beer was starting to become mainstream. It wasn't popping like it is now, but you know, if there was a party, you'd see two people come up with a craft beer. And then it was still pr predominantly you know, Corona's and Miller and Budweiser. So 
we saw the trend happening. So there was timing on our side. Uh, also, what we saw when we looked at, at, at the shelves, there was no brand, there was no vibe, there was no feeling, there was no, there was nothing done from a marketing standpoint to connect with an audience, to make the audience feel like they were a part of this company. This, this company represented who they were. And that in skateboarding is what we're built on. It's like when you look at Vans or Adidas or Nike, there's no difference in the shoes at all, right? It's all the image and vibe and emotion that they connect to their audience with that gets somebody to be a diehard Nike fan or a diehard Adidas fan. Same thing goes for Chevy Ford, right? And so we saw that as an absence to the craft beer industry. That wasn't happening. So you take an industry that knows all about marketing and having to dif differentiate product with, with content in an industry that is up and coming and doesn't have any of it. So we were like, dude, what if we market the way we know how to market in our world, right? Like let's, 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 let's sell this California lifestyle, surf, skate, snow, music, this culture that we're a part of in an industry where it doesn't exist. And, and it was right at the time where uh, social media really started popping. Like you started to have, like, this is before influencer marketing, but it was right when like Instagram was like kind of cracking. And so when we started the company, we had to raise money for it. And so we hit up a lot of our friends. It was like mainly a friends and family round. And that was pro surfers, pro skaters, pro snowboarders. And so when we were about to launch, you know, we looked at it and went, dude, a lot of us have a following on Instagram. Like, what if we just post about St. Archer on Instagram? And so you take this perfect combination, right? Craft beer expanding, not really any marketing or brand building in craft beer and Instagram and influencer marketing ahead of its time. And the thing just, you know, it was, it just, it, it was the right thing at the right time. Uh, and that's what I think did well. And so the original aspiration sounds like, Hey, we're gonna start a beer company. Let's raise some money and we'll kind of have a brewery. It'll be cool, whatever. And then like, at what point is there this inflection point where it's like, Oh shit, like, a big beer company is going to come buy this thing and maybe they, they're calling inbound or like, like at what point does it almost become real that like, this isn't just like me and my friends have a brewery. This is actually like a company that's going to get acquired. Okay. So when we went out to raise money at that time, uh, me, Paul and Josh, uh, the three co-founders, uh, we didn't know how to raise money. And in that process, remember I told you I had somebody come into my life that taught me about money. When we had this idea, we brought it to him. And we're like, what do we need to do? We didn't know what a business plan was. We didn't know anything. And so one, he helped us build a business plan, but two, he taught us basically how to raise money. And in that process, that was actually when it switched and we had to figure out what is the game plan here, right? And when you raise money, the first thing an investor asks you or they should ask you is, how do I get paid back? How do I make money? And not only do you have to tell them, you have to paint the picture in which they think it's actually possible that it's going to happen. So we had to accept when we were pitching this thing that we had to sell it. Like this thing had to be successful for, for anyone else to make money. So, so we understood that that was there. Then when we opened doors, it was really apparent right when we started that we had something special. I mean, it was, you know, with other companies I've done, it didn't work like St. Archer. It was like, we're going to break through. We're going to break through. We're going to break through. And then like year three, it's like, oh, 
we've got some traction here. With St. Archer, the second we opened doors, we couldn't keep up. We could not keep up. It was, it was, we are falling short of demand over and over and over. And our challenge for three and a half years was how do we grow fast enough to meet demand? So it was, it, it was different than the other ones I've done. Yeah, but, but you had the experience to kind of fall back and compare it to. And then how does the uh, Miller Coors deal come together? Do they call you guys? You guys call them? Like, how does that work? Uh, we had a, uh, call it like a broker uh, or an investment banker uh, reach out to us that represented uh, big brands or big, big companies that were looking to acquire smaller brands. And uh, they reached out to us and asked if we were interested and, uh, uh, and then basically, you know, we were like, hey, we'll listen. And then that turned into multiple offers. And then it was like, holy crap, this actually could be something. And then it was like, you know, throughout the process, like even after we signed the documents, we didn't think it was real. And then all of a sudden the wire comes through, we're like, oh, it happened. <laughs> You know. So no normally I ask, uh, whenever a billionaire comes on, I go, what did you do when you became a billionaire? Like the day, the second you became a, and realized you were a billionaire, what did you do? Uh, for you guys, selling a business is a very similar kind of euphoric moment, right? Where it's not just personal net worth. It's like, oh, we built something together as a team and we just sold it. Wire hits. What's the first thing you do? Um, so, yeah. So for me, I didn't become a billionaire, but I became a millionaire. And... Uh, it scared me. It was such a different experience than I thought it was going to be. And Paul, one of my closest friends who I grew up skating with, one of the greatest skaters of all time, was one of the co-founders as well. And we both got the wire. We saw each other the next day, and we both had the same feeling. It was like, oh, my gosh, like, we really can't blow this now. Like, we have to, like, really be smart. And it was, like, it was so different. Like, we thought it was going to be, like, you know, partying and toast. And, dude, not the case. So basically, my wife and I, uh, this was months after we sold it. My wife was like, hey, you know what? We don't ever celebrate much. Uh, we should go celebrate, I think, that we, you know, we sold the company. And so her and I went to Mastro's and had dinner. <laughs> that, was, that was it, you know? I, I so just, it was different, man. It's totally different. Well, listen, I know you're telling the truth because literally every single person thinks, oh, when I sell my company, literally, you know, we're going to go pop bottles at the club and it's going to be this amazing thing. And instead you're sitting there like, oh shit, like we can't mess this up. Dude. And you know what? We couldn't, and I was still skateboarding when it happened. So it was like, there was a part of me that was like, shit, everyone knows. And like, dude, I, you know, I went to a demo. I remember going to this demo and this, this guy was uh, like on the mic or whatever. And I skate in, he's like, Mikey Taylor, newest millionaire sold. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, like skaters don't talk about this stuff. They don't talk about money. And I remember being so embarrassed. So there was a point that was like, it was just, it, I felt, I was embarrassed. I, I was quiet about it. I was uncomfortable. It took me a while to like be okay with like what we did and, and actually be proud of it. Yeah. And another thing is you had money from family and friends. What's their reaction? I think a lot of people talk about like, what was your reaction? When you finally say to them, hey, we're selling this thing, here's the price, and for everyone who get, you know, for every $1 you gave us, here's how many you're getting back. What, what's that uh, conversation like? So that was where the joy was. It, it was so much more fun, that experience, than personal. And, and not saying, like, I, I, we weren't blessed by it. We were blessed by it. But, like, dude, my dad, my father-in-law, like, dude, my dad paid off his house because of this. It was like my father-in-law was like, these are guys who, like, 
like my dad and my father-in-law, they gave me money because it was me. Like they, I think they expected it to not pan out and gave me what they could afford to lose, you know? And like to see that, like bless them was like, I mean, dude, it was like, dude, my dad was crying. Like that was insane. My uncle was an investor. Like this, this is my family, right? And then it was like, dude, there were 10 pro skateboarders that were invested. These are like my friends. And like to see them, like, it, that was the best part of the whole thing, you know? And a lot of these guys, like, you know, I was fortunate enough to have somebody help me uh, learn about investing prior to that moment. So I had experience with investing. I had never had, had a, a, a gain like that, but I had experience with it. A lot of the skateboarders, this is the first time they invested in anything. So it was like, it was just to see the light bulb go off, like, holy shit, this is I need to be here, you know? <laughs> well, well, the, the only downside is then they think everyone's going to do that, right? Like, they're like, oh, what's the next one up? So that's the problem with your first time at bat hitting a grand slam. You think you're going to hit them every time after. And then you start hitting, you know, <laughs> field balls and then outs. It's a challenge. Well, so I don't know if you know who uh, Pat McAfee is. Pat uh, was a NFL player. Uh, he was a punter in the NFL for a number of years. And uh, he recently kind of left at really the height of his career, turned down millions of dollars and goes and starts doing content on the internet. Everyone's, you know, literally yelling and screaming like, what are you doing? You're an idiot, right? And uh, long story short is uh, he goes through a couple iterations, but he just signed this massive deal uh, with FanDuel. So they're going to sponsor him and, and all this crazy stuff. But he's got a group of 10 guys, I think it was nine or 10 guys who are like, his team right so they help him with everything production to guest all this stuff and uh, he just put a video up on the internet where uh he takes five hundred thousand dollars and he goes to the bank and he gets it in cash and he's got backpacks and he puts 50k in each backpack and then he goes at night and he's literally in like a sleeveless shirt and like some stupid like jean shorts that are real short and he goes to every single person's house and he's like on the phone he's like yo dude come outside yo yo, yo where are you and like guys are coming to the door and like they're boxers and stuff you know all this crazy stuff and he hands them the backpack and they open it and they reach in and they're like, dude, 50K. Like, what are you talking? You know, and they're and you see the reaction, and they're just like, because I bet on this guy, I bet on my friend, I've been working with them, like, like game on, right? And these dudes are hype. And so it's like, that's just for investing your time. When you take the yeah. financial risk, right? And then you get the reward, it's like that on steroids. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's that's such a cool story. Yeah, yeah and I think too, it's like, it, it, it shows too, like where, where we get joy from. It's like, we, we focus so much on ourselves, but like the true joy comes when you do things for other people. And like giving, I mean, you know, I, I, money is just one of those things. Like, I don't think you should worship money, but people get really stoked on money. So seeing that is for, it is cool. You know, what, what's the saying? Uh, m money doesn't solve all your problems, but it solves all your money problems. Right. Like, <laughs> that's a great way to look at it. Um, all right. So, so another thing is uh, you today have a very positive mindset, but I also heard that you were a little bit of a, of a head case back in the day in terms of every skateboarder, pretty much when they're young, super frustrated, can't land a trick, like all this stuff. Like, how do you, uh, over the years, mature, kind of shift that into a more positive mindset and like really start to believe, hey, I can build companies, I can, you know, invest capital and, and start to trust yourself really? Okay, uh, there's going to be two answers to that because they happen in two different ways. Uh, the point about my temper and being frustrated and uh, that was that got bad for a point. There, there was a there was a moment. I, this is when I knew it got really bad. I ran out of boards. So typically, like your sponsor sends you like I don't know ten skateboards a month, and I ran out of them. 
And so I went to a skate shop and I was like, Hey, I need to get a couple of boards. I'll, I'll bring you back a board when, you know, I get them and I get this board. I set it up. I look down and it wasn't the right shape. I put my foot through the board, focused a brand new board at the skate shop, right? You know, go pick out another board, set it up, do the same thing, foot through the board, right? Set up my third board. So you can imagine this guy goes into a skate shop, sets up two brand new boards, puts his foot through them. Third one, put my foot through it. Walked out of the store, so heated, right? And Blake, who's Grant's brother who connected us, you know, he gets in the car and he's silent. I'm pissed off. <laughs> and he looks at me and goes, a little upset there, huh, buddy? <laughs> I'm like, Blake, you have no idea. And he was like kind of the first one. I was like, dude, you know, I, I think you kind of need to check yourself. And then it was like, not long after that, I, I had a night basically where I was at one of my sponsor's Christmas parties and I was walking back to the hotel. It's like two in the morning. And I just had this moment where I started thinking about myself, about my life. And it was, it was this really trippy experience, but basically like I started thinking about who I was. And I remember the, the feeling I had was disappointment. It was like, I don't like who I am and this isn't who I'm supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be this pissed off guy who's complaining about everything, who takes all of this for granted. Like that's not who I'm supposed to be. And, and there was this moment I had where it was like, I have to change. Like if I don't change, I'm going to be miserable forever. And, and so that night became the beginning of a transformation with myself, uh, of just working on being more positive, working on being thankful. Uh, and that was a slow process. Then to answer the other question about having, how did I get confidence to be able to do companies or invest, that all came from skateboarding. That was like with skateboarding, you know, I, I think it's the hardest thing you could do on this planet. It takes so much time and dedication to learn it, but it builds so much confidence once you do, because you, you see the blessing of you dedicating all of this time and energy, delaying gratification for sometimes months until you get to experience it one time. And so I think that just built this confidence in myself where I felt like I could do anything. And, 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 and it was like, yeah, if I became a pro skateboarder, like, why can't I start a business? Like, I just be willing to put in the time. And so I would say both experiences came from skateboarding. Yeah, that, that's an awesome answer. And, and one of the things you said that was interesting was uh, this idea of like, I'm not supposed to be this way, right? Or this is not who I'm supposed to be. It's almost like uh, it feels like you have like a, a self-evaluation, but from outside of your body. And, and there's other people who have talked about, you know, Jeff Bezos is famous for saying, uh, when I go to make a decision, I basically go to me at 80 and I look back and I say, which decision should I have made? Right. And that's kind of the one I go with. Like, what, what was it that drove you to kind of almost have this image of like who you were supposed to be? It's a good question. Um, at the moment, uh, at the moment, it felt like God, truthfully. It felt like it, it felt like he was looking down at me going, I didn't create you for this. And, and it was like I was sitting alongside looking at the conversation happening. It was the weirdest thing. And, and, and that's the first time I've experienced something like that. And, and so I think it was just seeing this idea that like I was created to be something. I was created for this purpose and I wasn't living up to that purpose. And it was like, I guess you could use the basis example. It's almost like I got this vision of what I was going to be at 60 if I stayed on this path. And then I got this vision of what I was supposed to be. And I was not heading in the direction of where I was supposed to be. You know, and it scared me. It, it was, 
and, and how do you change, right? So it's one thing to say like, hey, I'm going down a path I don't want to go down, uh, but that's only like the analysis part. Then you actually have to like change. And so that's not very easy for a lot of people. Like what did you do or how did, how did you figure that out? That's, so I started with one thing. It, it, it was very small in the beginning, but I, ha I was having this problem complaining about everything. So I told myself in the beginning, every single day, I'm going to find one positivity in something that feels bad. Something that happens that I'm angry about, I'm going to find one positivity in it. And it became a game in the beginning. And like, you know, look, you don't change overnight. This is, I mean, truthfully, from that point of me deciding that, that was pretty much 2000, I don't know, seven-ish. I'm still working on it today. So remember, there's going to be grace to this. But my first thing was just, I need to start finding the positive in bad situations. And so when something would happen that I'd be pissed about, I would stop and go, what's good in here? What could be good in this situation? And dude, sometimes I had to reach. Sometimes like I had to find something that like, wasn't very positive. I just had to go anywhere to make, you know, a good thing out of it. And then what ends up happening is it starts becoming your routine to think this way. All of a sudden you don't fight having to find the positivity positivity sooner and later, all you see is the positivity. And even when bad things happen, like for example, prior to, to me working on this, something bad would happen and initially pissed off, initially fired up. Right. And then I'd have to like fight for the good in it. Then after I started working on it, bad things would happen. And I, I wouldn't even have that original like anger feeling. It was like, okay, that didn't work out like I wanted it to. What's good out of this? What could I learn out of it? And then it just became normal. So I, I would say that's where it started. Uh, and then from there, I spent a lot of time working on not being selfish. That was a big thing for me. It's like, I was always thinking about myself and not others. And I found that once I started thinking about others first, that brought more joy into my life. So it, it's funny, man. It's a lot of the things that I think we're supposed to learn as kids. And uh, I just forgot about from being, I think, in an environment like pro skateboarding that was all about myself. Yeah, no, that, that's a fantastic answer. Um, and, and then how do you eventually get to what you're doing today with commune capital and kind of the investing side? Like, where does that come from? So when my career ended, uh, and again, like I was, I, I just had surgery, right? And for anyone who has had surgery before that's an athlete, uh, it's a mental battle. It's like being in war and you're, you know what? I take that back. Basically what the whole world is dealing with right now because of COVID, that's what surgery feels like. It's like your mind is slipping away and you're trying as hard as you can to bring your mind back to where it's supposed to be. That's what, that's what surgery is like for an athlete. You, you, you go through this process of your mind telling you you're never going to skate again. Everything's over. You suck, blah, blah, blah. And so I was already dealing with that. And then my career ends and now it's, it's on top of it. Like, oh my gosh, now what? And in that moment of me trying to figure out what I was going to do next, which was about a six or seven month process, I was trying to find out, I was trying to find my identity and I was trying to find my purpose. And I was wrapping that into a company. I had this idea that if I started a company, the company and me being the business owner of the company was going to be my identity and my purpose. And I was failing miserably. Every idea I had was not the right idea. And in that process, I had a, a, a one of my friends, another pro skateboarder call me and kind of just check in on me. Dude, I haven't seen you in months. Like, what's your deal? And I was just like really kind of beat down and open with them and just told them like, dude, I'm struggling. Like, I don't know who I am. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. 
like this is the first time in my life I've felt depressed and it's felt dark. And you know, he was like, dude, I don't know why you're tripping. Like, you don't have to work, dude. Like, what are you talking about? You're like one of three pro skateboarders that like doesn't have to like call his sponsor up and say, can I please work in the warehouse and move straight to survival mode? What are you talking about? And it was like that conversation that like, you know, really made me feel like shit. And so I sat down on the couch and just had this moment of like, you know, like looking back in my life and going, why am I in this position? Like, why am I one of three? And why was my friend like so impressed that I was able to achieve that, but the majority of us can't. And it all went back to Randy, who I met when I was younger that helped me structure my finance, that helped me and Josh and Paul uh, start St. Archer. And so my idea was, you know what? I need to do what he did for me to all of my friends that are still skateboarding. Like I want all of my friends to be in this scenario that I'm in because this is something that wouldn't have been taught to me if it wasn't for him. And I would be in the same scenario as everyone else, basically out of money and scrambling to find a job after my career if he wouldn't have come into my life. And so it started as how can I give back? And as I went through the last 15 years, he started off with the foundation of finance. He taught me the very first steps of how to manage my money. And then he taught me about investing. And then he had opportunities for me to invest with him, which were in real estate. And so I basically tried to replicate that model. I created a company that is a real estate fund. So that's the opportunity. And then all of our content is geared around educating the way he educated me. So it was all this give back from what he did in my life when I was 20, 21 years old. Yeah, it's, it's so cool too to see, I think uh, athletes across all sports um, really starting to understand, wait a second, like we've always relied on financial advisors and all these other people who, uh, you know, sometimes have good intentions, sometimes don't. Uh, and, and we hear the horror stories all the time, but it just seems like whether it's NBA players, sounds like professional skaters, whoever, they're just taking more kind of personal responsibility and realizing like, hey, I got I to gotta understand this stuff, right? I got to invest uh, capital for myself because if I just trust everybody else and I don't know what's going on, like odds are I'm going to get screwed somehow, right? That's right. 100%. That goes beyond athletes. That's most people. Most people that have advisors don't pay attention to any of their money ever. They just, this isn't my thing. There you go. And we shouldn't do that. Even if, even if money isn't our strong point, we still need to be educated on what our money is doing because we work so hard for it. How are we going to spend our entire lives building up money and then not knowing where it's going? It's, we just can't do that anymore. You know? Yeah. And, and why focus on real estate? What was that just something that you felt like you knew and had an advantage with or, or what? So, so I had experience investing in a lot of things now, right? It was like, I was investing in real estate and it was on the commercial side, storage units, multifamily. I had experience in stocks, bonds, and from a total portfolio, investing in startups, the whole nine, right? And if you looked at my portfolio and what I felt the most comfortable in as far as risk, real estate was always that I feel good with this. Like, I feel like I can put the majority of my capital to use. And I don't know if it was it being a tangible asset. My dad had rental properties growing up. Uh, I don't know if I just had a liking towards real estate because of what I saw, but I always felt more comfortable with it. It never felt like, like the stock market, for example, right? The stock market, like I could never wrap my head around why it was doing the things it was doing, but real estate felt like I could, it didn't have these crazy swings. So I felt good with that. 
with startups and, and while I'll go to St. Archer, uh, when we did St. Archer, and I think most startups, you have to be prepared to lose everything. It's a different type of risk, right? So we're either losing your money or we're going to make a big profit. And so when you have that much risk, you can only invest or you only should invest an amount that you're okay losing. You have to make sure you have the capacity to lose that investment, right? And so when I thought about how I was going to help athletes prepare for the future, it wasn't these crazy high-risk scenarios. It was how can I create an opportunity for them that is actually going to give them cash flow and appreciation and something they could live off of. And I felt like out of all of the investments, real estate was the thing that I felt the most comfortable with. And so now that I'm going out raising money, I wanted to do the same thing that I was I wanted to put my mouth where my money was and my money was in real estate. And so that's really why I focused on real estate. Yeah. It makes a ton of sense. And, and what was like the initial reaction from uh, skaters or other people that you kind of went to that, that were in your friend circle when you're like, Hey, look, this is what I'm going to go do. And, and uh, you got to get educated about this. Did they kind of fight you on it or was it just, Hey, that, that's the guy who really understands this stuff. So I, so I trust him. So uh, from my initial circle, it, it was actually kind of natural. Most of my friends kind of understood it. And that's because for my circle, like I was kind of the guy who, uh, like for example, me and, and the guy who called me uh, asking if I was okay, right? His name was Sean. Uh, we went and uh, basically were a part of this rebuild for the shoe company called Etnies. And it was me, all of our friends. I was like the skater that all of them looked up to and went, okay, you help them build this thing. We're just going to skate. So I already created this relationship where they were like, you understand what's going on. You're interested in it. We trust you that you can kind of speak for us. And then with St. Archer, a lot of my friends were involved in that. And so the next thing it was like, dude, you're like, you're our friend, but like, dude, you've kind of been this guy for us the whole time. Like we trust you uh, and, and we're in it. It was the rest of the industry that was a little bit, uh, how would I say this? They didn't catch on as quick, I guess. And, and, and yeah. what causes them to eventually catch on? Is that they just see that it's working and, and people are getting kind of uh, the, those monthly checks or like, like what kind of is the tipping point where people start saying, hey, you know what? Actually, like I may have laughed at that or ignored it in the beginning, but like I actually should be paying attention to this. Maybe I should be participating. I think because I had like I, I had such a big transition. Like we talked in the beginning about reinventing yourself. I had such a big reinvention, right? That in the beginning, I think a lot of people just go, the hell's he talking about? And is this going to fade? Right. And I think athletes, because like we're, we had one thing as our identity and then that goes away. A lot of times we grab really quickly onto the next thing. It's like when you hear about relationships and if you're a guy and you know, a girl breaks up, you jump into another one really quick. Right. And so I think a, a lot of the people are like, what's he doing now? What is this? And is this just a phase? And is what he's saying even true? And then after a while, I think you, you hit a point where they go, oh, wait a minute. Like, this isn't just a phase. Like, this is, he actually is doing this. And how does he know these things? And, and then you get to a point where they start doing your, their due diligence on you. They start paying attention. And then after a while, it's like, we're here, man. How do we do this? How do we get started? And and so, dude, it just took, it took time. It's still taking time. There's still a lot of skaters that uh, do not approve what I'm doing for sure. But there's a group that's like starting to like uh, be pretty encouraging now. 
Yeah. And, and do you see um, kind of non-skaters, kind of more of the traditional investors wanting to be in and around and associated uh, with the skaters and the skaters also like, they're like, hey, I'm a skater, but like, I kind of want to know what the rich people are doing so that I can learn what they're doing. And you kind of almost get those two groups coming together. Okay. So yes, believe it or not, like if you look at our investors, uh, dude, it's an eclectic group now. Like they are diversified, right? It's like we have skaters, football players, like we have the athletes and then we have entrepreneurs that like kind of I connected with through like what I do now. And dude, we have lawyers, a lot of sales guys, business owners, like advisors, like it, it's a, it's like traditional and, you know, my kind of past life combined. And, and I think you have two sides of it, right? Like on the more traditional and like, dude, we have investors that are a little older now too, right? It's like, yeah, they want to like be in this like cool hip, like skeeter thing, but like they don't want to put their dollars at risk either, right? They're not just going to hand me, you know, 300 grand and go, I'm just going to give you this because I want to be cool, right? So there has to be a balance between, oh, what are these guys doing? And this sounds cool. And they know what they're doing. And I trust them with it, with my money. So there is that balance, right? And then from the skaters uh, or the athletes, uh, I don't know if they're so concerned about being involved with like uh, traditional, I don't know if it, I, I don't see that. I think they're more, how do I learn about this? And does this work? You know, and then as it starts working, then it's like, holy crap, like you weren't lying. What else do I need to know about this? You know? Do, do you ever bring the whole group together? Like, is there like Christmas parties where you've got the skaters and like the lawyers hanging out together? So we do like, I ha we haven't got the whole group together yet. Um, we do like, uh, we do do like, uh, like for our content, for example, um, we build these videos uh, kind of highlighting individuals that are investors with us. We'll do these conversation pieces with athletes talking about money. And then unfortunately, and what we talked about with your wedding, we had it planned to do this event like for all of us and then COVID hit and now we're gonna wait until sometime next year. So yes, that, that has been part of our uh, plan. It's just, it's taken time and then now it's been delayed. I love it. Uh, one of the last things I wanna talk about is just the real estate market in general. Like how do you see that changing um, given kind of COVID and the economic shock and all of that? Um, it's gonna change, I mean, for sure. The thing about real estate is there's a lot of different assets in real estate. There's not just one thing, right? So you have hospitality, you have single family, you have multifamily, you have retail, you have storage, you have office, all of these things are going to be affected differently because of this, right? And so, you know, I think we saw what happened to hotels. That was like the one that got the biggest blow early on. Uh, what happens from that? Uh, I personally think it's more of a short-term problem as far as hotels go. Uh, again, everybody's kind of speculating at this point. Retail, uh, as far as stores go, I feel like this was, you know, the last e-com boom that, that was like a massive blow to retail. I think this is, this could be like the, the knockout. And so I think retail could change significantly, but even if you don't have a physical store and you're selling everything online, you got to be able to place this product somewhere. So, you know, will warehouse or industrial do well through this? I could see it doing well office space. If you would have asked me six weeks ago, I would have said office space is going to get shit on. I don't know now, actually. Part of me is 
you know, and I'm basing this off of personal experience. Like it was cool working at home the first like six weeks. I was like, yeah, I'm doing this thing. I am sick of it now. I want to get back in the office. It's like, it, that's just me. So I'm wondering if, if that changes, we'll see. Uh, as far as multifamily, uh, multifamily, single family, there, there will be an effect at some point. Uh, we're not seeing it the way we initially thought. And I think that's one of two things, but right now government is involved. They're involved with our business. They're involved in real estate. And so I think the bigger effect is going to be because of that, right? It's like, we'll see how that shakes out. I like multifamily uh, through this. I like storage through this, uh, but we will see. What's interesting right now, what's happening like at the moment is there's invest investors are eager to invest, right? As far as like dollars coming in, like they know that there's, there's action to be had. I think everybody's kind of feeling like, dude, this is going to be a big wealth building opportunity. They're eager to invest. Deal flow is very challenging right now. And basically what you're having is you have sellers that look at uncertainty and they want to let go, but they don't want to accept the fact that there's a post COVID price correction, right? And so then you have buyers like us and we're going, no, nah, that price has to come down. Like this is our time now. Like, right. This is a buyer's market. Like, you know, you're not going to drop below 10%. What are you talking about? No. And so you have this sellers haven't adjusted yet and buyers aren't moving forward. And so, you know, it's eventually going to do something like this, but dude, there's not a lot of deals penciling out right now. So I've heard that from a lot of uh, real estate investors where they're basically saying that sellers are still holding on to pre-pandemic prices and buyers are like chomping at the bit, but buyers are also being somewhat disciplined, understanding that the world is different now. Um, but uh, I was talking to one guy and uh, he actually had a really interesting thesis. He said, uh, I'm going after grocery anchored real estate yeah, and true. warehouses, yeah. right? Yeah. And, he, and he was just like, look, e-commerce boom, like we're not going back. People realize that when they press the button on the internet, like the package does show up and it's awesome. So like yeah. th that's, you know, going to accelerate. And then he's like, and look around, like literally in a pandemic, when you talk about pandemic resistant type businesses, he's like, what's the one business on every block that didn't get shut down by the government? It's grocery stores, right? Yeah. And he was just right. like, that's going to, you know, be a huge focus for him moving forward. And I was like, it's pretty interesting to start thinking about like, the, the strategies change as well, right? So it's not just asset allocation, hey, should I be in real estate, should I not? But also like okay. the types of people of real estate that people are looking for ha has seemed to shift it as well. A hundred percent. And one thing about it, like even though like this pandemic was kind of a black swan that caught everybody kind of blindsided us in a sense, this naturally happens through corrections, right? Risk appetite changes, strategies change, and people tend to be less opportunistic, right? It's like, Dude, January came around, people wanted huge returns, right? They were willing to take on crazy risk and wanted, you know, double digit IRR, et cetera. Now it's like, where can I get 6% cash flow? That's, we're, we're yield starved now, right? So investor appetite change, yes. Like as far as what's going to happen moving forward, you, of course you have to change. I mean, investing is still, especially something like multifamily, it still operates like a business, right? Where do the trends end? So where do the trends head? What's going to happen? Are people, are people going to want more space? Is some of these tiny homes going to be less uh, valuable because we all experience what it feels like to be locked in our house for three months? Possibly, right? What's the outcome from it? Uh, but it's like, I'm a big believer in people need a place to live. They'll always need a place to live. 
And as long as you're buying correctly to withstand corrections, you'll be fine. And so that's what you're seeing now. It's like you have buyers that are going, I'm not catching the knife. I know what's about to happen. I know where we're headed. I don't care if you don't know. I know, and I can be patient, right? So it's, it's just a patience game at this point. But what is cool is in January, when, when we put offers in on uh, apartments, uh, dude, there'd be seven, eight buyers. Like trying to get a, a deal below asking was incredibly hard because people were jacking up the price. Now, when we're losing offers, dude, we're like the only offer in maybe another group and it's well below asking. So it's just a matter of time is my belief. Yeah. Uh, last question on that topic is just, when does it happen? Is this, are you talking six months until sellers realize three months, a year? Like what do you think kind of gut? And obviously the future is hard to, to predict. Well, so uncertainty is everything, right? And you see it even happening like in our lives, like when it looked like the economy was opening up, things were kind of starting to get better. It was like, okay, we've hit the bottom and now we can adjust for it and move forward. Until that happens, there's still gonna be uncertainty, right? And so the question I think becomes, at what point can people no longer hold distressed assets? At what point are they gonna be forced to take or exit a deal that they don't wanna exit? And that is when I think you're gonna start seeing a price correction. And look, if people, if there's a rent, uh, if there's an eviction moratorium, you can't evict, right? If lenders are giving you forbearance on not paying your debt, no one's going to be selling anything right now. They don't need to. What happens when that dries up? What happens when the bank goes, that, that was 10 months, dog. You got to start paying. Things are going to start hitting the market, I think. And when things start hitting the market, I think that's when you start seeing price corrections, supply and demand, right? There's a shortage still. That's why we haven't, I think a lot of the sellers haven't accepted a price correction because there's still a shortage. So what happens when everything hits the market? Possible price correction. Now, none of that could happen. This is a full-blown speculation, right? But at least how we're planning for and we underwrite, dude, we look for deals that what happens if everything, everything goes wrong? Can we still hold this asset? And if the answer, answer is yes, then we move forward on it. And that's always been our strategy. So it, truthfully, it's easier environments for like this for us than it was last year. Like last year, everybody looks at us and goes, everybody else is getting higher returns than you. Like, why would I want to invest with you? And then now they're like, wait, you didn't lose investors money and you guys are still, okay, now I want to be with you. So that's, you know. It, it always works that way, right? Is, uh, is everything looks great until you realize that they're taking so much risk that it actually may not be the smart risk that you're actually taking. Everything looks great when the market is moving up. It makes everybody look like they know what they're doing. This is what weeds everybody out, dude. This is where the pros survive and the amateurs go away. And then it happens all over again. This is cycles. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, to wrap up, I always ask the same two questions. First one is, uh, what is the most important book that you've ever read? The most important book I've ever read is the Bible, I believe. Uh, Why? The, I think, well, I think there's three questions that we all have to answer to, to have joy. And that's identity, purpose, and destiny. Mm -hmm. And the Bible answers all three. So that was the, the point in my life where I went, I know who I am. I know why I'm here. And I know where I'm going after this. And so that's why I think it's the most important. 
And another thing that's real interesting, the Bible talks about, as far as the topic goes, talks about money more than anything. It is such a, it's such a good way on how to live a life of joy. Uh, and also people think like, I don't know, I, I think people have an idea that the Bible is like Santa Claus. It's like a made up story. Historically, historically, it is a great uh, documentation of what happened, right? The argument then becomes about God or not. But it, I mean, dude, there is full of value in that. So that I would say is the most valuable book, most important book. It's a great answer. Uh, going on that, I once had somebody come on the podcast. Uh, he's an ancient alien uh, researcher. And he basically said, uh, there's two questions that everyone asks, which is what happens when we die, right? Which I think the Bible addresses. Uh, and then uh, are we here alone? So my second question is uh, more fun, which is aliens, believer or non-believer? You ask everybody this question? I've asked over 330 <laughs> people, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um the answer is, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, I think you're the first person to answer that way. So explain. The reason I say that is, okay, so because of my first answer, right? Bible doesn't talk about aliens. And so, and I believe the Bible to be true. And so that you can either take that one or two ways. There either isn't aliens or I'm not supposed to know about them. And so, I don't know. <laughs> there could be, there couldn't be, uh, I've never seen one. So as far as what my eyes can tell me, the answer would be no. Uh, I hear about some crazy stuff that makes it pretty, uh, what would you say, convincing that there could be, but I don't know. I don't have an answer to you. I, I, I think it's that. fascinating though. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Trust me. There's some people who got some wacky theories for sure. Well, especially with this new one. You saw this new one that came up uh, was like a week ago. This it's like, it's like okay, is there? But you see some of these videos. Again, it's like, and you just don't know if it's true or not, right? You're just right, like, right. I don't know if that's like a manipulated video or not. But like, what the hell was that? Look, I'll be the first to tell you. If I ever see one, I will agree with you. They're real. Until then, though, I'm not going to take a stance. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, you get to ask me one question to finish this up. What is the one question you have for me? So you focus on crypto? Yeah. What do you know about Why do you let... <clears throat> I, okay. This might extend our convo for another 10 minutes, but... That's fine. It, it, it would be great. So... What I know from crypto, I would say uh, I'm not completely in the dark, but I am the furthest thing from a beginner. Uh, I understand the concept of it. I, I believe that it's the future. Uh, I don't believe it. I, I believe it's going to have to become regulated in some sense for it to actually become a true currency that you can invest in. But the concept of it, I like. Uh, to add to that, you know, I saw this whole thing with, was it Dogecoin or something like that? Dogecoin. Dogecoin. And then I go, oh God, TikTok and, and crypto combined is dangerous. People can lose a lot of money on this. So uh, I would say where I'm at right now, there's a lack of experience in education. So my answer, this might not be a qualified answer, but for how I invest, which is more of a value-based investing, I, I'm not there yet with crypto to, to consider it as that yet. Uh, but I think it's the future. And I believe crypto becomes uh, a one-world currency that we all uh, follow by.
So here's what's really interesting, right? Is um, what you just articulated, I actually think is one of the most popular uh, perspectives of Bitcoin slash crypto, right? Some people call it crypto, some people say just Bitcoin by itself, but it's basically- But Bitcoin is a coin of crypto, correct? Yes. Uh, so this is where it gets a little bit more controversial in the crypto community. But basically think about uh, there's three types of coins, right? So there's currencies, things that actually want to operate like digital money. There are uh, digital securities, right? So imagine a stock being more of like a, a coin type thing. Uh, so it'd be equity in a company or something like that. And then in the middle, there's uh, kind of these um, utility tokens. So uh, a very overgeneralized example would be uh, when you used to go to Chuck E. Cheese, you had a coin, you could like play games, you got entertainment value, and maybe you got some tokens and you could go like re redeem it for a gift or something. So it gave you access to something, right? Uh, same thing would be like an Amazon gift card could be access to the Amazon network or whatever. Okay. Um, and so Bitcoin is basically the winner when it comes to the currencies, right? It's either Bitcoin's going to be the winner or nothing in terms of replacing the US dollar or anything like that. All these other tokens can replace certain stocks. They may give you access to networks, all that kind of stuff. But to me, it's like those other things are less binary. Bitcoin is very binary. Either the dollar gets unseated and Bitcoin is the winner, or we you know, continue on with like fiat currency type system. Um, but what you said of like, hey, I know there's something going on basically. Like, I don't really understand it, but like, it just feels like the momentum and energy and like that is the future. I actually think that's what a lot of people think, right? Because they're just like, look, I haven't spent the time. I don't feel like I'm qualified to understand all the nuances and, and even like teach other people about it or whatever. But it just feels like there's like too many smart people and too much energy and money and, and just like the direction it's heading seems very similar to like what the internet was in the mid nineties, right? And just people being like, mm. yeah, like I kind of like, I get it, but I don't really use it yet. And like, it feels like that's going to be important, but like other people will figure it out. And mm. so I actually think that's like a really good thing for crypto in some weird way, right? Because it's kind of like people don't have to understand the nuances, but they're buying into this idea of like decentralization and, and all of that. Um, and so when it eventually becomes very user-friendly and, and all that, I think eventually then you know, people are just like, oh, of course this was going to be a thing. I just didn't know how or when, but like now yeah. I'm ready to use it, right? Yeah. And to, to, to add to that, I mean, think about Think about the lack of understanding when it comes to investments in period in general. Most people don't understand the nuances of the stock market. They don't understand the nuances of real estate, even investing in currencies, but they still do, right? So, but look, I'll tell you what, man, I like going back to the Bible and like Revelation's last chapter talks about what happens at the end of this world, right? And they're very clear about one world government, one world currency. So you look at this time and, and you know, I believe it to be true. I go, okay. If there ends up being one world currency, what is the currency? It has to be a digital form, right? That's what yeah. I think. So yeah, I'm with look, you there. I, I, I tend to think that uh, everything points to we end up in a situation where there's a global currency. Like Jack Dorsey from uh, Twitter and Square basically says like, look, there's a native currency for every country. But basically the internet is its own country. Like you and I are citizens of the internet, right? And so like it needs its own currency. So that one world currency ends up, he, he believes Bitcoin, I believe that, right? Other people might think it's something else. Um, but also when you go to like the geopolitical stuff, like you're telling me that China, Russia, the United States, India, and like, you know, 150 other countries are all going to keep using their own currency and doing trade with each other and trying to guess who's manipulating whose currency. Like, I agree. Totally agree. Totally agree. Happen.
Uh, cool, totally man. Agree. Where where uh, where can people find you uh, on the internet and uh, and find more about uh, uh, the investing stuff? Uh, okay, so if you want to find me on the internet, uh, Instagram is probably like the hub. It's just my name, Mikey Taylor. Uh, you could pretty much find me from there. Uh, but all of my other handles are the same. If you're in on the TikTok trend before they remove it, Mikey Taylor. <laughs> you know, I have a number on uh, my Instagram that you could text me. Uh, and then, uh, the investment stuff is commune capital. So you can go to communecapital.com, you go to commune capital on Instagram, or you could find it all from my Instagram. Awesome. Well, listen, man, I really appreciate taking the time to do this. I'm, uh, I'm super excited for you guys and all the real estate investing you're doing and uh, lots of send people over there. Thanks, Ian. I appreciate it, brother.